Uh, take your Bibles and open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if you have them. Since we're at the start of a new year, let me just take this to, for my annual encouragement for you to bring your Bibles if you don't. I know we put the scripture up on the screens, but I have usually encourage people not to rely on the screens for uh, in place of your Bible. Um, I don't want you to just blindly believe everything that I say up here. I want you to check it for yourself and uh, tell you the truth. We could put anything we want to up on those screens and call it scripture. Uh, I've actually seen very well-known preachers quote something and put it up on the screen and it be nothing like what the actual scripture was. And they add stuff in there to fit what they were saying rather than making what they were saying fit the actual scripture. So uh, I encourage you not to just be that... uh, just check it for yourself. Bring your Bibles is all I'm saying, okay? So uh, it's a good, good habit to get in. Second Corinthians, uh, real easy to find because it's right after First Corinthians. So <clears throat> turn there. That joke's getting old, isn't it? That's one of those things we'll just leave in 2016. So you won't hear that one again. Second Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to read 16 and 17. So let's all stand together as we do that. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, and he says, Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Let's pray. God, you are so good. Lord, we were singing earlier that you are worthy of it all. God, I pray that through your Holy Spirit, you would show us your worth. God, so many times we, God, want to claim glory for ourselves. Lord, how sad it is that we would would want to do that, to claim anything for ourselves that completely belongs to you. God, you are worthy of all glory and all praise. And so, Lord, again... Just reveal your worth to us through your word this morning, that we may be forever changed by it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Out of all the 365 days that make up a year, there is one that we put special emphasis on, even though it really is no different than all the other 364 days. It's the day that we just commemorated a week ago, January 1st, the start of a new year. And we call it new, even though there really is no difference between it and December 31st. The only difference is that we designate it as an official holiday and then change the year to the next number on the calendar. Uh, The actual newness of it is very arbitrary, meaning it's only new because we call it new. And even then, the newness of it doesn't last very long. When we wake up on January 2nd, we're back to the day being just like all the other days again. The newness of January 1st is just like the newness of anything else in this world. It doesn't last forever. 
If your house is like mine, I'm sure there are probably Christmas presents that are sitting right where they were left after they were opened. I mean, opening them at first caused a lot of excitement because of the newness of it, but that newness quickly faded away, and now they are laying there forgotten and abandoned. A week from tomorrow, I'm going to be receiving two brand new knees. And once my rehab is complete, I'll enjoy the newness of them, hopefully by being pain-free once again. But that newness isn't going to last forever either. After a while, at least 20 years, I'm hoping, they're going to also wear out and then I'll have to do something else. The point is, anything that we experience as new eventually fades away. And because of the fast pace at which our society moves today, something new can become old very quickly, like fashion styles and music and catchphrases and technology. That is true for everything in this world except for those who are in Christ. For the Christian, new has come to stay. In this text that we just read, the last line of verse 17 says, Behold, new things have come. In the Greek language that Paul originally wrote this letter in, he uses the word genomai in the perfect tense, which indicates that this change that has taken place, the old becoming new, has taken place at some point in time and continues to happen from that time on. In other words, Paul is saying that things have become new to stay new. They are continually new. As a Christian, once you are saved, things become new in your life and they should continue to be new and not grow old. The newness of God's creation is a newness that that never grows old or outdated over time. Your life from now on can be experienced as forever new. You don't become nice, you become new. You don't turn over a new leaf, you receive a new life. I love the way that John Wesley describes it. He said this of a Christian. He has a new life, new senses, new faculties, new affections, new appetites, new ideas and conceptions. His whole tenor of action and conversation is new. And he lives, as it were, in a new world. God, men, the whole creation, heaven, earth, and all therein appear in a new light and stand related to him in a new manner since he was created anew in Christ Jesus. Now, I'm not sure how many Christians actually understand this and realize that this kind of a life is actually possible. It seems that so many people view being a Christian as nothing more than just being affiliated with a particular group or a set of beliefs or ideals. It's like being called an American just because you live in the United States or calling yourself a Republican just because you agree with a particular set of political views. It's just another designation of one's particular interests much like somebody might call themselves a shriner or a mason or a hunter or an artist, an Aggie, 
or I'm a longhorn. And then we'll say, I'm a Christian. And fit it just like all those other categories that we call ourselves by. Our culture in particular here in East Texas is full of people who claim their identity as a Christian only because they go to church on somewhat of a regular basis or because they were raised in a Christian home or because they live in the Bible Belt of the United States or because they wouldn't really fit in around here if they identified as something other than a Christian. Other than that, there really is no evidence of this new life, especially not the way that John Wesley describes it, which is a very good paraphrase of the way the Bible describes it. The first point, if you're following along in your notes there in your bulletin, is this. Being a Christian does not mean simply that you associate yourself with a particular group or agree with a certain set of beliefs. It means you have been transformed into a whole new way of thinking and living. It's not just a change in your behavior. Not just a change. and It's a complete change in your your whole mindset. Your whole outlook on things. The way that you think and perceive the world around you. So what specifically has become new? This is what we're going to be looking at over the next couple weeks because there is so much that is new for those who are in Christ that spending just one sermon on it would not be sufficient, would not be adequate to even cover a fraction of it. it. So what we're going to look at today is the next thing in your notes under what's new, and that is you now have a new standing before God. This text here in verse 16 it starts with a therefore and you should know now that whenever you come across as therefore in scripture Paul is tying together what he said right before the therefore with everything he's about to say after it so let's look at what he said before so we'll better understand what he's saying in verse 16 start back at 14 he says for the love of Christ controls us having concluded this That one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. So what Paul is saying is that your identity and your standing before God, before salvation, is what died with Christ. Well, what was that standing? What does that look like? Well, it's the same standing that everyone has apart from salvation. The same standing that we all are born into this world with that can be described as evil, full of wickedness and sin, dirty, condemned, defiled, rejected, ashamed, and guilty. The Bible says that we are enemies of God and slaves to Satan. It doesn't get much worse than that. And because of our disobedience and rebellion that results in this kind of a nature, we were deserving of nothing but God's absolute wrath. Where verse 14 says that one died for all, he's referring to Jesus dying for 
all those whom God chose for salvation. Jesus died for all of them despite their corrupt standing before God. And because he did that, it then says, therefore all died. That identity and that standing that I just described is what died with Jesus. It didn't just go to sleep. It wasn't just knocked out for a little while. It died. That sin nature governs every aspect of your life. It affects every one of the choices that you make. It affects your belief system, your worldview, your attitude and motivation. It affects your goals and all your desires. And with that sin nature, the only thing that can serve as the object of your highest affection is you. You are the number one thing that you think about far above anyone else. In that sin nature, it may even appear that you are thinking about somebody else. But deep down, because of that sin nature, you are doing it because of what you can eventually get out of it. You cannot help but be completely consumed by self-centeredness in that horrific sin nature. Verse 15 says that Jesus killed that part of us. So that they who live, who now live in Christ, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. That sin nature died in Christ. So that you can now live the life that he created you for. That life that pleases him. The life that is different than the life you lived before salvation. The life that is different from the way that everyone else in the world lives who doesn't know Jesus. The next point. He didn't just set you free from something. He set you free to something. It was from sin and to a new way of living, to a higher way of living. Whereas before you were unable to live anything but a self-centered and sinful life, you are now free to not live that way anymore, to live a new life, one that can be lived for someone other than yourself and for a purpose other than your own desires. And so now verse 16 makes more sense now that we know what was before the therefore. It says, therefore, now that your sin nature That pitiful stance before God that you had before salvation, now that it has died, from now on we recognize no one according to the flesh. He's saying we don't recognize, refer to, or associate anyone who is now in Christ with who they used to be. But we don't even, not just who they used to be, we don't even associate any Christian with anything that has to do with that sin nature even now, regardless of what they may do. Why? Because the rest of the verse says, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet we know him in this way no longer. Here's what it means to no longer be identified according to the flesh. It's to have the mentality and the knowing about yourself that I may have done the things they said I did, but I'm not who they say I am. Does that mean that we're not going to sin anymore? Of course not. What it means is 
For example, a Christian may continue to struggle with alcohol even after salvation. But it would be wrong to keep on identifying them and attaching their identity to that by calling them constantly an alcoholic. The term alcoholic is a term of identity. It says who and what they are. It is an identity that is associated with that sin nature that says you can't do anything about it. It has complete control over you, which is antithesis to who you are in Christ. You have been set free from that. I mean, you can acknowledge your problem without attaching it to your identity. Because, see, we always live out of our identity our, ref- our actions will always reflect what we think about ourselves, who we think we are. If you keep being identified as an alcoholic, eventually you're going to start believing that and go around, well, that's just who I am. And it will be harder to keep your actions from following suit to that. And so for someone who is trying to stop drinking, they now have a situation where they're trying to do something that is completely contrary to what they believe about themselves. It is very hard to do something like that, to try to act in a way that is, goes completely against who you think you are. If you see yourself as a failure, then you're going to struggle to have success at anything. Or when you do have success, hard to accept it. And just know that it's going to blow up at any moment. It's also going to be hard to find the motivation to even try success at anything. Our actions always line up with our identity. And so it is vital as Christians to remind ourselves every day who we now are in Christ. Because once we start to believe it, then our actions will eventually line up with that. But most people have a hard time seeing themselves as this new creation. Because what we tend to do is associate our identity with our worst of actions. It's as if we're thinking, well, I can't be who the Bible says that I am in Christ because I know what I've done. And what I've done doesn't match that. The good news of the gospel is that If you are a new creation in Christ, you stand before God not in yourself, not in your flaws and failures, not in the labels that others have put on you or in the labels that you have accepted for yourself. You stand before God not in you, but in Christ, in Him. Last point in your notes. God no longer sees you but only sees him in whom you now stand. That's what it means to have a new standing before God. God's grace allows you to be so identified with Jesus that the favor and the love that the Father has for the Son is now 100% passed straight to you. I brought something to illustrate what it means to be in Christ As we stand before God, let's say that this jar here represents Jesus. And this little army man represents you. 
and all your failures and all the bad things that you've done in life and all the labels that people have put on you and the things, the identity that you think about yourself. But once you repent and turn from your way of living and give your life to Jesus and put your hope in him, the Bible says you are now in Christ. And it also says that you are sealed in the Holy Spirit, never to change again. And so now when God looks at you, he can't see all those bad things about you that you think he sees. All he can see is the purity of his son, Jesus. That's what it means to be in Christ, to have that kind of a standing before God. And it also is an accurate portrayal of Colossians 3 3, which says, For you have died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. It's hidden with Christ, which means God can't see it. All he sees is Jesus. There was a painting that was done by a man named Abraham Solomon back in 1859 that I find very powerful and somewhat mesmerizing. It's a painting called Waiting for the Verdict. It depicts the family of a man who is on trial for a crime that he is accused of committing. And the family is sitting outside the courtroom just agonizing over the outcome of the judge's decision that is going to be handed down at any moment. And each person in that painting has a different expression, but they are all filled with the heavy weight of anxiety. The defendant's family there includes his elderly father and mother. Hold on, go back to the bigger thing first. His father and mother, his wife, his little sister, and his two little kids there. They're all waiting on the judge's decision. When I saw this, I sat and looked at it for a minute, and my stomach kind of knotted up a little just imagining being in that situation right there because the artist does an incredible job of capturing the, the different emotions of each character in that scene. And as I looked at it, I realized that this could just as easily be a depiction of how many people view their relationship with God. So many people go through life worrying about what God's final verdict is going to be on them. They agonize over thoughts like, have I been good enough? Have I prayed long enough? Have I sinned less enough? Have I done enough? So many live their lives with the hope that the good things that they've done in life will outweigh the bad things that they've done in the end, thinking that that is what is going to uh, buy their reprieve. But that's not how God operates in your life. That is not the standard that he is going to hold you to. For each character in this painting even depicts the different ways that we see ourselves in relation to God. Many people see themselves like the father, his face clasped in his hands, just appalled at the situation. So many people are appalled at the things that they have done and feel so ashamed before God. Others may look more like the man's wife, who's just full of fear and timid, 
Some are like the little child who's asleep on the floor. He's exhausted from the hours that have been spent waiting up there at that courthouse, much like those who exhaust themselves trying so hard to be good in their own strength. The little baby reminds me of when Jesus said that we must come to him as a little child. The baby is smiling with joy, completely oblivious to the agony that is going on around it. She's totally helpless and needy, completely dependent on others, but she's smiling because regardless of this horrific situation that they find themselves in, she is secure in the arms of her grandmother. And speaking of the grandmother, her look is different than everyone else. She's the only one who doesn't have this look of fear and anxiety on her face. Even though it's her son's fate who will, be, who will be decided at any minute. But instead of worry, she seems to have just the faintest little smile coming across her face. And she looks to be at peace. It's as if she knows something that nobody else knows. She's in on something. And she's confident about it. And then finally, there's the defendant's little sister. Something has drawn her attention away from the others. The courtroom door has opened up a little bit where she's looking with curiosity at her brother's attorney. But you will notice he is painted very straight and very tall as if the artist has captured the fact that he is walking into that courtroom with the fullest authority and confidence about what he is about to do in there. This was Abraham Solomon's most famous painting of his career. Then a few years later, he followed it up with a sequel called Not Guilty. And I don't know if he was a Christian or not. I tend to think that he probably was just because of the spiritual symbolism that is so both of these paintings are filled with. What strikes me about this one is the look on the man's face who has just been found not guilty. It's not a joyous celebratory look like the rest of the family. I mean, there is obviously some relief there, but... He looks like he's just kind of staring off because he's somewhat stunned at the verdict. Like he knows that he was guilty, but can't believe that he was actually found innocent. His father knows who deserves the gratitude for his son's freedom. It's his attorney who went into that courtroom so confident and and straight. The one who represented his son before the judge... And then there's one more detail about this painting that I think is so neat, especially if you view this from a spiritual perspective. Way back in the background, there's a crooked old man who's being motioned to go away. I believe that this was the accuser of the man on trial. More than likely, he was the one that brought the original charges against him and accused him of committing this crime that he was on trial for, but... His accusations have no place there anymore. 
the verdict has been handed down not to ever be changed again. And as he tries to convince everyone else that the judge got it wrong, he is prevented from coming near the man and told to just go away. 1 John 2.1 says this, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. The word translated to advocate is the word parakletos, which means one called alongside to help, which is also the word that was used for an attorney. At one time, you stood guilty before God, guilty well beyond reasonable doubt. It was a slam dunk case against you. But if you've given your life to Jesus, he now stands constantly before the Father on your behalf, pleading your defense by presenting, presenting the evidence of his nail-scarred hands, the evidence that your guilt died with him on the cross. It's like Jesus is going, yes, the evidence of what he has done, the evidence of what she has done cannot be disputed. It is clear the things that they have done, but here is what I have done. And what I have done trumps what they have done. The guilt over what they have done died with me on the cross Father, you must find them innocent. I have a friend who pastors a church in Augusta, Georgia, that I've gotten to know over the last few years because uh, he's part of the Kerygma network of churches that we belong to. And several years ago, his wife completely twisted off on him and did him wrong in just about every way that she could do him wrong and filed for divorce and they went through this brutal custody, custody hearing where she brought all these false accusations against him, trying to completely destroy him in front of the judge. And there was one key moment in that trial where the judge was going to ask him a particular question, and his answer to that question was going to weigh heavily on the judge's decision. He said that, when the judge asked him, the question caught him off guard, and he just stood there, speechless, trying to come up with the right answer, not really knowing what the judge was looking for in the, way, in the answer that he was going to give. And the gravity of that moment with the relationship of his very own children hanging in the balance, it just caused him to just completely freeze up. He could not make his mouth move, and he could not produce any sound for any words to come out. He was just so frozen, just physically unable to do it. And he began to panic inside that it was about to just all be thrown away. But at that very moment, he said his attorney stood up and answered the judge on Brian's behalf. It's like he knew exactly what answer that judge was looking for, and he gave it. And it allowed Brian to not only win the case, but to gain full custody of his children. 
He won the case not because of what he did, but because of what his attorney, his advocate, did. Apart from salvation in Christ alone, every one of us stands guilty before God, not able to do anything about it, just like Brian was unable to say the things that the judge wanted him to say. But if your hope is in Jesus, he stands before the Father on your behalf. But Satan will try everything he can to accuse you of everything under the sun and get you to believe that you are anyone other than who you are in Christ. But because your verdict has already been declared not guilty, he has no more ground on which his accusations can stand. You now have a new standing before God, and it's a standing that won't ever grow old. The newness of your standing will never wear off no matter what you do. Your advocate constantly defends you before the throne and reminds you of who you now are in him. There will be times, no doubt about it, when Satan's accusations will get to you. And you will fall into the trap of believing that you are anything other than who Jesus has made you. But when you are reminded of your standing and who you actually are and the truth penetrates those lies, it becomes new all over again. So we need to remind ourselves and remind each other every day because Satan's accusation and his lies are coming every day. Every day. I'm going to close by reading one more verse. Lamentations three twenty-two through 23. It says, The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for His compassions never fail. Look, they are new every morning. Constantly new. Great is your faithfulness. Next week, we're going to look at what else is new for those who are in Christ. And I promise you won't want to miss it. Let's pray. Lord, it is an amazing thing to know what it really is that you have done. God, amazing to think of the identity that we have been given in you. Amazing to think of how you see us now. God, it's so hard for us to accept it because there have been so many labels put on us. Lord, we do tend to associate our identity with our actions the Holy Spirit I'm asking you to come right now and let your truth penetrate the lies that have held so many back for so long Lord I know that there are people in this place this morning who need something new in their life God there are some that just keep struggling with the same old sin 
Some of them just keep falling into the same old patterns that don't reflect you at all. God, some in here who are believing the same old lies over and over again. Lord, I'm asking that today would be a defining moment in their life where that pattern stops. Where they are set free from that habit once and for all. God, where they will no longer believe in the lies and recognize them for what they are. Lord, let your truth reign in their life. God, I'm asking for, for, for chains to be broken. I'm asking for ears to be opened. For eyes to see you for who you really are and begin to see them as who you see us in Jesus. Lord, it sounds too good to be true, but your word says that it is, so we're going to stand on it. And we're going to keep believing it until you say otherwise. Lord, I thank you for your glorious truth. Lord, I pray that it would change somebody in here this morning. Lord, would you get the glory that you deserve, the glory that you are worthy of receiving for all that you are and all that you have done. Lord, have your way in the remainder of this time. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.